It's time for Security Now. Steve has questions and answers, 10 of them. He'll also talk about the latest security news. Stand by. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 419, recorded August 28th, 2013. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 174. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com twit and use the offer code SN20. And by Lookout, a mobile security company trusted by over 40 million customers, including me. Lookout specializes in stopping new cyber threats, finding lost or stolen phones, and backing up data. Protect your Android or iOS device now by visiting lookout.com slash security now for the free download. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones, your privacy, online and off. And and I say off because we do some of that, too. He's Mr. Steve Gibson, our explainer-in-chief here from GRC.com, the man who created uh, Shields Up, Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility, and, of course, this first discovered spyware, coined the term, and wrote the first, believe it or not, anti-spyware program, Lo, these many years ago. Uh, yes, I used to have hair back then, Leo. <laughs> and here we are in the year nine of the Security Now show cover. That's a yeah. long time for a show to be going. That's great. Now... The reason it continues, though, is that we don't take ourselves too seriously. No. Which I'm going to prove with the first item here on our list to discuss. <laughs> this is a Q&A episode. So it is. We'll get a little we news in. Need, but We first need to discuss de-waxing ears. <laughs> All yours, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I actually have some stories to tell in, in the, in, along those lines, but go ahead. Well, that's why we're discussing it, because I, I heard you on Twit talking about how... You are, this was on Sunday, you had been declined for having your custom ear My ear molds. Fit. The uh, audiologist yes. said, you got to clean your ears first. Now, and she said, I don't do earwax removal. you got to go to the hospital, the doctors to do that. Well, not true. That's why I wanted to put this at the top of the show, Leo. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. I have the solution for your <laughs> yes, earwax removal do. needs. No matter what it is, Steve will, this is what I like about uh, geeks, particularly people like Steve. They'll do the research. They'll find the best. doesn't matter can be a projection TV. It can be earwax removal. It and you can bring this up on the screen, earclear.com, uh -huh. com. You know, the Gizwiz had some Fakatka ear vacuum that he tested out. Yeah, that's, uh, those are ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so this was maybe, this was during, after I had kicked in to my, let, let's, you know, take ourselves seriously about health and supplements and, and all that stuff that I've been doing now for eight years. Yeah. And always, my entire life, my right ear tended to collect wax. Yeah. It's and a genetic thing. It's actually a marker. 23andMe 
discusses this. There are two uh, markers for earwax. There's wet and uh, flaky, wet and dry. And uh, you and I probably have the, the wet marker. <laughs> I think that's probably true. What I will tell you is the idea of using a syringe it absolutely works. It is doctor approved. That's what the doctor does. Are, uh, now, on this page, it looks like you're shooting Coca-Cola into your ear. That's probably not the case, Oh, he right? put the Coke can. The, he, he's an interesting guy. He actually called me on the phone when I ordered some of these. So I think it's a rather small operation. I don't think he's – and I don't remember whether there was a PayPal button at the time. His is very expensive. His is like $40. Um, you can – but there's one for six forty nine. That first link in the show notes, healthenterprises.com, earwax removal syringe. Anyway, the point is Can't you that, just get a bulb or something to do that? I mean, you Well know. you want enough volume, but so so let me just get this out, Leo. All right, get you, it out. You, get it out. <laughs> you do this in the shower. You're, yeah. You have yes. your syringe there it can be messy. in the shower. <laughs> yes. And so you pull the plunger out, fill the little tube up, yeah. put it in the top, and just just squirt squirt a syringe worth of warm shower water into each ear. I have turned several friends onto this in addition to myself, and they cannot believe it. I mean, they were doing Q-tips and coat hangers and, oh, you know. Oh, don't do coat hangers. Holy moly. <laughs> no, no, I mean, that would be bad. a bad idea. It was bad. And so this is, I mean, that's this is the way you solve the problem. And so if you do this, just... You know, when you do your daily shower, you just squirt one syringe worth into each ear. In a couple days, they are just, it's amazing how effective it is. And I wouldn't be sharing this if it didn't absolutely work. Thank you. And just solve the problem once and for because all. Because of you, I'm going so, to get my in-ear molds made. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. They also, by the way, the same company makes uh, vinyl eye patches and... <laughs> Uh, pillbox, pill splitters. So it's a it's a good company. They're in the, the biz. Com, folks. <laughs> yeah, AccuLife. Oh. Yeah. No, no, no. The uh, AccuLife uh, Health Enterprise. The oh, second, okay. the six dollar forty nine cent one. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I, I went for the thirty five or forty dollars. You went for the expensive one, huh? Yeah. Well, it's it's actually the first one that I saw. I don't know how because Amazon has like a million of them. Yes. You put in like ear syringe. Yes. You just get. A bazillion of them. Yes. Somehow I found this guy. The forty, and, uh, the forty dollar one. <laughs> yeah, he was. He took himself very seriously too on the mm -hmm. phone. He was like, mm -hmm. you know, he, and I, it comes with. Well, in fact, here's mine. I had it. I had. Holy my, my, cow! My, that thing's got a lot of volume. Yeah. <laughs> you just. Yeah. Nice little pop, and so you just fill it up, and then then squirt it in your ear. And he talks about how it's got this little bent angle. So that you can't go too deep. And that's, that's good. A, you don't want obvious. to do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, when he's got his, his little set of instructions wow. that comes with. And, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, all I'm saying is that's the solution. And it works perfectly. It just ends ends the issue for anyone who has a, an issue with earwax. Okay. Okay. Actually, we're going to do some security, Leo. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the on the subject, the category, <laughs> the category of that didn't take long. Yeah, we have a huge lineup of like everybody being shaken out of the rafters who have secure communication solutions to the NSA dilemma. Oh God, you know I I got I some emails from people talking about NIMS and all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. That, and so so here so the phase we're in. At the moment, 
is the everybody rushing to capitalize and cash in on the current frenzy over security. That'll pass, and we'll end up with the right solution, or, you know, a couple of them. Right. At the moment, everybody's jumping in. So, of course, Kim.com. <laughs> of the mega, of the mega fa fame, yeah. Of mega fame, who's, he's in New Zealand, right? Yes. And he's not happy with the New Zealand government because they're beginning to make some noises mm. about changing regulations to, you know, thwart his ambitions. Yeah. Anyway, so his deal is he's going to fill in the, fill the shoes of, of Lava Bit. Of course he is. Um, uh huh. Being right. being the humanitarian that he is. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. yes. So, uh, Vikram Kumar, uh, who is with with Mega, told ZDNet that the company was being asked was being asked to deliver secure email and voice services. We don't know who's asking, but somebody apparently. He says, "Please, please, Mega, you have to solve this you, problem. It's up to you." In the wake of the closures, he expanded on his plans. Kumar said, work is in progress. Building off the end-to-end -end encryption and contacts functionality already working for documents in Mega. Quoting him, the biggest tech hurdle is providing email functionality that people expect, such as searching emails that are trivial to provide if emails are stored in plain text or available in plain text on the server side, says Kumar. Um, continuing to quote him, if all the server can see is encrypted text, as is the case with true end-to-end -end encryption, then all the functionality has to be built client-side. That's not quite impossible, but very, very hard. That's why even Silent Circle didn't go there. A big issue is handling emails to and from non-encrypted contacts when Mega's core proposition is end-to-end -end encryption, says Kumar. Of course, yes, that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. So he says, on this and other fronts, Mega is doing some hugely cutting-edge stuff. He says, there is probably no one in the world, Leo, who takes the Mega approach. No one. No one. No one. And, no. and that's because they're all so stupid. <laughs> of making true crypto work true. for the masses. True. Which is, says Kumar, our core proposition. It's what we so, do. So we don't know yet what he's up to. Right. He, he talked about bloom filters, which is a an interesting filtering technology. Maybe it's going to provide searching of encrypted email. I'm not sure why that's a big need but we'll see so they're weighing in also moxie marlin spike uh, apparently come in off of his boat and <laughs> you know it brings him out from all the corners doesn't it <laughs> exactly it's like oh wait wait we can solve this so uh dan gooden our friend over at ars technica reported uh and so so we know about Redphone. Redphone was the secure solution that, that Moxie was doing with uh, ThoughtCrimes.com. Remember, ThoughtCrimes is Moxie's site where he's working on this. So now they've got something called Text Secure for Android and iOS. Mm. And, again, details are still unclear, 
And I'm a little uncomfortable by the way they're trying to solve the problem. The problem is the problem with texts, texting security is that the protocols like uh, like OTP that we've talked about um, it, um, are that they're online protocols like SSL. When you, if you think about it, the whole idea of a handshake in SSL is real-time exchange of of cryptographic content in order to do key agreement and obtain a a secret which you share which you then use to encrypt your interchange the problem with text messaging is it's not necessarily real time that is well i mean by design it's like email it's a it's it can be a store and forward sort of operation so the question is how do you secure this and so I think what we're going to be seeing for the future and what we'll be covering are various attempts and approaches and ideas. I'm I'm interested to see where this goes. I think long term, once we get out of this all the sort of this reactionary, oh my god, you know, we're we're the ones who have the solution, we'll probably come up with something that works because because I really do believe that a consequence of of all of this will be the development by the big boys, by the heavy guns, by the RFC committee kind of guys of some next generation solutions. There there will be pressure to create them that we really haven't seen before. So the reason I'm a little uncomfortable with what Moxie's doing, aside from the fact we don't really have an understanding of it, is there's something called pre-keys which they store on the server. And that immediately makes me feel nervous. Apparently, when you create a, an account for this text secure, at least for iOS, and there's some confusion between iOS and Android because if your Android machine is on, Android is better than iOS is about allowing things to run in the background. And so there can actually be a handshake in the background with Android that iOS just will not support. It just, iOS is is, is going to fight you on this. So, again, details are very fuzzy, but, the, but what I've seen is comments like 100 keys are pre-generated and stored on the server. So your, your phone... Gener- I'm making this up now. I'm just, you know, like, okay, well, how would this work? Apparently, 100 keys get generated. And the idea is that that's a way for you to receive 100 text messages in a what I could only regard as semi-secure fashion because they have the keys. But, I mean, maybe they're encrypted so that, so that uh, we just don't know. You know, they could be encrypted so that... Something I, I, I it's just impossible to guess how this thing can be secure. Where your phone is pre-generating some, your phone or the server is pre-generating keys, and then somehow that decouples you from needing to be online in real time. But Moxie's in the game, and with thought crimes, and we'll maybe get more details as this thing matures. Now, um, I'm interested in remail, the, uh, the idea of remailers. At some point, I'd like you to 
look at that. The cypherpunks, who I really trust in all of this, have yep. do some uh, do some remailing, which looks like the only real way to be completely anonymous and private. Um, because when you send mail, it has to be. I mean, you got to use PGP, right? Uh, anyway, we've talked about this before. I don't want to. Yeah, I don't yeah. understand how uh, somebody can provide a service unless it's software on your desktop. I completely agree. End to end encryption. It's we have a great question. We have a great question that, w- that we're going to get to uh, li- later in the show about the notion of maybe, w- well, why not let the email server do that rather than the client? And it's an interesting sort of thought experiment in in moving that one step back toward the server, uh, which we'll talk about. I want to cover a couple more of these things. There's something called Wicker, again. Uh, another one of these oh we got a solution for that w-i-c-k-r not clear where the name came from my wicker m-y-w-i-c-k-r.com is is the company and these guys okay they sort of sound like they're using a lot of the right words they're it's free and it's like okay well it would be nice to understand why you're doing this and and how we trust you. Uh, so it's a free app. They show it, I think, for an iPhone. I'm not sure uh, how much platform cross-compatibility there is. But but they're on their site. The Internet is forever. Your private communications... The Internet is forever. Your private communications don't need to be. And so deleting stuff is one of their benefits. So they say that Wicker is a free app that provides military-grade encryption. It's like, okay, well, I guess I have to say that for, you know, mom and dad. Of text, picture, audio, and video messages. Sender-based control over who can read messages, where and for how long. Best available privacy, anonymity, and secure file shredding features. Security that is simple to use. So, okay, that all sounds good. Then they said... We have made this app with the best available security technology, but we strongly encourage you to only send private messages to people you trust. (laughs) What? what? (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Whatever. So, you know. (laughs) I don't know why they even say that. I I guess Anthony Weiner could use this, but he needs to trust the recipient, which actually does make sense. Sounds like more snake oil to me. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. Uh, Then they said, Wicker uses AES-256 to protect data and ECDH-521, so we know that that's elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman key exchange. Why? Or why, why that's press. military grade. Well, I know, Leo. Yeah. Whoa. Maybe they have, maybe they have nail, <laughs> Navy SEALs. They haven't said that, <laughs> but maybe. Uh, for the key exchange, RSA-4096 is also used as a backup and for legacy app versions. So I guess they used to use that, but they don't anymore. They went to elliptic curve, which is shorter keys, and that's going to be faster and so forth. Wicker also uses SHA-256 for hashing, which is the only thing you can use it for. And transport layer security. Uh, encryption keys are used only once, then destroyed by the sender's phone. Okay, that sounds, I mean, that sounds good. Each message is encrypted with its own unique key. And no two users can have the same AES-256 or ECDH-521 keys ever. Our servers do not have the decryption keys. Only the intended recipients of the intended devices can decrypt the messages. So that all sounds good. 
Um, and blah, blah, blah. I, I, I wrote more here when I was making the show notes. Blah, blah, like, blah is oh. good. That's a good summation, a okay. summary of all of it. Yeah. So, and you know, yada yada yada. The information you give us, your information is always disguised with multiple rounds of salted cryptographic hashing. Before then, it parens if it is transmitted to our servers. Okay, I don't know what that means. If because of this, we <laughs> well, don't if you know. never mail it, uh, they can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never keep it gets, to yourself. Keep it to yourself. You that's really trustworthy. Then that's the if most. You don't yeah. trust anyone, Leo. Yeah. Just don't send no, it. No, don't send it. Mm -hmm. um, Anyway, uh, I don't know. You know, another one of these things. Then we have Cackle. Secure, safe, private, and confidential. Mm. I don't know where it's. Cackle it. Cackle, C-A-C-K-L-E hyphen I-T dot com. And then this is a little disturbing under the how we could do it category. They, I'm quoting them. Explaining exactly which ciphers we use at Ooh, which time no. and for what reason. We shouldn't tell you that. Would be tantamount, Leo. Tantamount. To, to giving a uh, good word, tantamount. <laughs> to giving away our company secrets. No. Uh, no. Well, no, wouldn't want no, that to happen. No. However, look, what, look, they put a key on an iPhone. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what, what we can divulge yes. is an incomplete list of some of the cryptographic methods we make use of. 16,384 bits of ID-based encryption. Whew. Leo, that's a lot of bits. That's a lot of bits. 384-bit elliptic curve encryption, 256-bit mm. and higher AES encryption, mm -hmm. the Diffie-Hellman protocol mm. for the handshake. Mm -hmm. But that's all we'll say. Mm -mm, no more. Mm -mm. No, mm -mm. we don't want to give away any of our, co our company secrets. They're so, in Cyprus, by the way. Cackle yeah. is. <laughs> I did see that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm a big uh, fan of open source. So, uh, you know, obscurity. Th I know. Security I know. through obscurity. And is then, not you know, and then I gave money to Hemless. We talked about Hemless. Yeah. Yeah. Some time ago. How'd that H work out for you? Uh, not very well. <laughs> H-E-M-L dot I-S. Unfortunately, apparently everyone has been asking them how their crypto works. They're spending time on the pretty colors on their UI. There's been a lot of focus. In fact, uh, on, their, on their second update blog posting, they have a spectrum of colors, <laughs> and they show which letters of the alphabet each color corresponds to because that will help you see which conversation, to, like, follow the threading of conversations. And this is, Leo, it's very pretty. But unfortunately, in the third update, under the topic, the questions about encryption, they wrote, this is they, most questions about Hemless is about the encryption we're it going is. to... Yeah, no, Most questions is about the... Yes. <laughs> How it's going to work and details about it. For different reasons. Now, you know, to be fair, English is not their first language, so mm, their their right. English is much better than my Swedish. Right. But said for different reasons, we've stayed away from talking too much about the details. It's not because we're arrogant. It's just that dealing with the crypto. I'm, now, this is I'm quoting them from their third update. But dealing with the crypto community, it's really time consuming. 
They don't have time. They don't have time. Oh, okay. we've seen that happen before. And they said whatever no solution time. we've decided on would be criticized. And Wouldn't want that. We aren't interested in the flame war that's inevitable. Right. Right. We'd rather create and get things going. Maybe a small lesson for the crypto geeks out there would be to be supportive instead of negative. And it's like, uh, well... Steve, you're not being very supportive. I thought these were security guys, Lee. <laughs> no, That's no. Why I gave them, you know, it's I very thought, obvious they're web designers. <laughs> why I gave them money. Yeah. They're not now, security guys. They did say, after taking all things into careful consideration... We've decided exactly how the encryption will work, which is nice. I yeah. guess they're not going to tell anybody because mm. they're, they're afraid they'll upset us, no. which is not really the right strategy. However, they said, we've listened to all the comments and wishes from you guys, and we are, we are now quite happy with the implementation we're going for. Well, thank goodness. I'm glad they're it's happy. It's based on free and open source solutions, and we'll release the full source... We create for the usage good. of it. Oh, good. All so right. that's good. Yeah. More details will follow later, closer to release. So that's hopeful. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll see what they come up with. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of where we are right now. We're, I mean, as I, as I predicted last week, I mean, this is essentially what's happened is everyone's gone Oh my God! You know, look, everybody suddenly wants security. We, you know, did, didn't you say that your mother was a security expert? Well, let's ask her. Okay, so she stores all her passports on the desktop in a file called passports.doc. That's secure. Yeah. So that's where we are. Um, uh, I'll we'll keep track of this. I want to keep receiving people's findings on you know send me a little a, a tweet or a, a note in, do you in don't that. use pgp do you you don't really use no. email so you don't I use it no i've just never had a need right. for secure secure mail i am gonna i got a, a couple of very uh, interesting emails encrypted emails from a, a guy who styles himself demosthenes you may remember yes the character of demosthenes from the enders cycle uh, he uh, gave me very specific instructions on how to use Cypherpunk's NIM, N-Y-N, as an uh, anonymous... As in a pseudo... Pseudo-NIM servers, um, which is an interesting... Uh, you know, and it still uses PGP, but it's about, it, it, it's about the metadata, hiding metadata as well. So an interesting idea. But uh, I'll pass those along to you and you can enjoy Okay, yeah. cool. So, okay, the most tweeted... To me, topic of the week was the unfortunately the source of great hyperbole for members of the press, whose whose headlines were "No passwords are safe any longer." The end what? of secure passwords, oh, crud. as we have known it. Now, if you were using Monkey Leo, <laughs> yes, uh, maybe that's true. <laughs> the the. All that happened, however, is that the well-known high-performance Hashcat GPU-based uh, brute force cracking system. Yes, which has become very good. Has become very good 
they had a password length limit of 15 characters forever. It's always been 15 right. characters. And so all anybody had to do is to use a 16-character password. Right. And Hashcat couldn't handle it. At the cost of rewriting half of their source code. And it slowing was a, it down a little bit, too. Yes, it was. Yes. Um, they, they Essentially, they lost 15% because they, the limiting the password link to 15 characters for all kinds of of technical just like the 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 the, the data path width requirements there were optimizations they were able to apply at 15 characters or fewer which is why in the beginning when this was first written that's what they did that was their target but they realized that that couldn't stand so Jens uh, Stube, S-T-E-U-B-E, who also goes by the handle Adam, wrote in the release notes for this upgrade, this was by far one of the most requested features. We resisted adding this feature as it would force us to remove several optimizations, resulting in a decrease in performance for most algorithms. The actual performance loss depends on several factors, GPU, attack mode, etc., but typically averages around 15%. Dan Gooden, who's a pretty good technical writer for, who, for Ars Technica, wrote, As leaked lists of real-word passwords proliferate, many people have turned to passwords and passphrases dozens of characters long in hopes of staying ahead of the latest cracking techniques. Crackers have responded by expanding the dictionaries they maintain to include phrases and word combinations found in the Bible, in common literature, and in online discussions. For instance, independent password researcher Kevin Young recently decoded one particularly stubborn hash as the cryptographic representation of, quotes, there is no fate but what we make, which, of course, we all know came from Terminator 2. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that, but good. <laughs> good on you for recognizing that. Um, and, no? and so there, there is, you know, there is no fate but what we make is obviously a concatenation of a bunch of words. Yeah. So those of us who have thought about this a lot recognize that, yes, that's good, but it doesn't it's have actually password. that... Right. Much entropy, right? Because well, and you did know, you see how they found it? It, it was in it, there's a Wikipedia entry with the quote in it. Well, so actually, apparently they're hashing all the Wikipedia entries or something. There may be that, but uh, the the I think maybe you're thinking of the, this second one. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yianis, uh, yes, then that was, that, was a, that. Yeah, a security researcher who recently completed his master's of science uh, thesis on pa modern password cracking was able to crack the password. Get now, this. this one is Get just <laughs> ridiculous. Get this. I can't pronounce this. No. Capital P-H and then an accent. N-G-L-U-I <laughs> space M-G-L-W quote, single quote mark accent. N-A-F-H space C capital C-T-H-U-L-H-U -H -H space capital R apostrophe L Y E H space L G A H apostrophe N A G L space lowercase F H T A G N one period. Which looks like uh random. 
but it's not. No, that's the fictional occult phrase from H.P. Lovecraft's short story, The Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, Cthulhu. Ah. By the way, James Spawn said, oh, yeah, that's from The Call of Cthulhu. In our yeah. chat room, right away, recognize it. That's why we got good people in the chat room. It would have been impossible right. to use a brute force attack or even a combined dictionary to crack a phrase of that length. But because the phrase was contained in this Wikipedia article, yeah. it wound up in a word list that allowed the security researcher to crack the phrase in a matter of minutes. So what so our this podcast, our listeners' takeaway is abandon anything but true random characters. It's the only thing we have left. Is well, if you use a random uh, passphrase, but actual words, wouldn't that be okay or no? There Not is as good, of course. What we make that may have actually appeared because it appeared in Terminator Two. But, but somebody in the chat room said, "If you know, my doorbell has cow mustard on top of its sticky sidewalls. It's not. That's such a random phrase. You could remember it. So that's the issue, right? Is the best obviously is truly random. The more entropy, the better. Yeah, I really think we're at the we're in an era now where tools like LastPass, where they are long, truly random passwords, and you have given up." You are no longer remembering any of those. You've turned responsibility over to this technology. We're, we're at that point now where yeah. you have one master password, which also really needs to be good. But, you know, some, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of, of using a keyboard-based algorithm and something to come up with something really screwy and... That's the way I remember my master password. Something sort of semi-mechanical. Um, and then just give up and have a good random number generator or random password generator make things up for you. I, so that's just the way I've been operating now ever since I found and vetted LastPass. It's just like, okay, you know, and the good news is that it's, it's, you know, LastPass is ubiquitous. It's on all your platforms. I've got it running on my iPad. And so it'll, if, when I want to do something on my iPad, it's like, oh, I use LastPass tab, which is the iOS-based browser. And it says, oh, yeah, here, I'll fill that in for you. It's like, oh, thank goodness. So, you know, you need ubiquity if you're going to if you're going to have passwords in your life that you absolutely don't know any longer yeah the challenge is this uh this master pass which you have to remember you got to have one yeah yeah um i'm gonna, i'm going to try uh you know uh, uh chris uh somebody somebody from yubikey sent me a note saying that they have a new yubikey one of their yubikeys supports um PGP passwords, passphrases. Oh. So I'm going to try doing that. Of course, if you lose the YubiKey, you're screwed. Yep. <laughs> so don't I still do think it's best to have something that's in your mind that you can remember. Yeah, and well, and the YubiKey, great as it is for its purpose, um, is USB. Right. And so that's that not going to work on Android. Right. right on right, your right. phone. Right. You sh you're going to have to do what Walt did and just memorize the GPS coordinates. Of his stash. <laughs> and then, did, did you see what he did? Then yes, he I thought that ticket. was brilliant. 
Now, really? this is not a spoiler uh, because it's not it's not no, a plot it's very, point. Very obscure. But but uh, he needed to remember a GPS coordinate, so he memorized it. But of course, short term. He, he didn't. Yeah, short term. He didn't trust his long term memory, so he bought a lotto ticket with a number of numbers. It wasn't the number that he used. But the second number in with the number of numbers that he purchased, you know, he worked. So he yep. must have Basically, bought. he turned it into a lotto ticket so right. that there was a, a record right. on the refrigerator right. that no one would ever imagine right. was GPS coordinates. Yeah, very clever. Mm. Not okay, a now, this is bizarre. Um, this is, yeah, it's sort of fun and interesting. Uh, people should not panic. But it turns out that the, that, um, Netscape Security Suite, NSS, which is the foundation for both Firefox and now Chrome, has a an SSL logging feature. If you create a an environment variable, all capitals, SSL key log file, and you set that environment variable to a file name. Then you launch Firefox or Chrome and do anything with SSL and then look at that file. It has dumped all of the security keys that were negotiated. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, is that, uh, that's like the key. That's it is, all you in need. Fact, it is so much the key that if you also, even somewhere else, captured the traffic, Ugh. Wireshark will decrypt the dialogue for you using the hex which has been logged in that keylog file. So you can try it yourself. SSL keylog file as an environment variable. Set that to a file name. I tried to set it to C colon backslash, you know, here are my keys, dot log, and fired up Chrome, went to GRC, looked in the file, and here was this beautiful log <laughs> of all of the negotiation that had been done. Now, it doesn't do that unless you've set that environment variable? It doesn't do Correct. it by default. Okay. So it's a Correct. debugging feature. It's a debugging feature that developers use, and it is handy if... You're, you yourself are a developer and you don't have something like Fiddler or, you know, one of the ways of, of intercepting uh, secure transactions because Wireshark will, there, there's a, you're able to select the, decode this protocol, drop the hex in, and it's like, blink, there's all of your dialogue in the clear. So you certainly, if you turn this on to play with it, remove it after you're done. I mean, so this is not, a huge issue because remember, we, we have to understand what our security perimeter is. Our own system is, is our own system. We want to keep malware out of it. We want to keep people out of it. This is like, you know, Chrome that doesn't encrypt your, your website passwords, that sort of thing. It's like, you know, in RAM are all these keys all the time. They're, they have to be there to be used to have dialogues. Normally, our browser doesn't write them to disk. And and these are, you know, these are, um, these are keys relative to the server you visited, but that's only going to be the server's, you know, public key and the, and the keys that you negotiated for a while. But, you know, 
you don't want to have that happening. So it's uh, just I ran across this the other, I actually this this morning this SSL keylog file as an environment variable that will cause the local security suite the the, the NSS uh, Netscape security suite to log what it does to hard drive. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so I just wanted to mention, since all of your other podcasts had commented on Steve Ballmer's uh, news that he was leaving, that uh, um, he was one of my favorite people there, Leo. Yeah. I, I'd got to know Steve. Really? Back, oh, yeah. Um, back in the days when, you know, he and Gates were hanging out at Comdex, um, Bill was always very focused and, and all about business. And, you know, Steve was someone that would have a beer with you. And, you know, remember your name. And uh, He seemed I was like always, a nice guy, actually. Yeah. Yeah, he was. And, you know, at the same time, he could never have built Microsoft. Right. You know, I mean, he wasn't Bill Gates by right. any means. Right. And you know, so he was, he was, you know, a great person. I mean, he was a, a, a nice person to work with Bill to sort of like, you know, go to meetings when Bill was busy doing something else or couldn't be bothered um, and and I thought he was a you know he kind of kept things going for a long time, um, and I think this whole issue of Microsoft's sort of faltering is not surprising. We've seen Microsoft faltering ever since PDAs first happened because you know they're a one trick pony. They're you know they've got an operating system that is massive and you it's never been able to run on batteries. And so they've been having a problem with that ever since. Initially, it was PDAs, then it became telephones. And, you know, as, as PDAs and phones sort of merged. And I just, you know, here they are now. There was a, a news blurb that was saying that a year from now, when XP stops getting its security updates, it's expected that fully one-third of PCs will still be running XP. Yeah. And, and it's like, yeah, because... Companies don't have money to burn right now, and Microsoft's unfortunately their model is is one way or the other forcing you to move forward, even if XP works just fine. And so, new machines which are purchased will typically have you know, well, hopefully Windows Seven, maybe Windows Eight at some point. God help you, but uh, you know, so they won't have XP, and so it, it's just it'll just be. XP will end up dying off by, you know, because the machines that had it will end up dying themselves and new machines will have a new version of Windows. So anyway, I mean, I didn't think Bomber was ever a genius, but I don't think he was ever expected to be. He was just, you know, he kept things going (laughs) as well as he could. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this was inevitable. We've been, you know, but uh, yeah, he's a nice guy. It doesn't mean you know he should be running Microsoft. Just you know, he's a nice guy. It's good. It's an yeah. important point to make. It's kind of apparent when you read you know his quotes and so forth. he's, yeah. a, he's a fun guy. Um, I did want to share a, a. I got a kick out of an XKCD cartoon, Leo. <laughs> XKCD.com. This one is one two five six. So you can see it at xkcd.com slash 1256 or 1256 slash large if you want the big version. And what this is, this again is classic XKCD. These are questions found in Google Autocomplete. Uh And it really is wonderful. 
It's, you know, where you it's begin. To, it is fabulous. You, you know, you begin to type something and then Google guesses based on what other people have asked in the past, what you're going, what you may be in the process of asking. And so it, it's just a massive screen of sort of fun things. But someone, uh, I don't remember if it was through Twitter or, or GRC.com slash feedback, noted that in the very far bottom left corner, you go to the bottom left corner, then you go to the right one column, so it's in the second column, and the third line up is, why is there always a Java update? <laughs> <laughs> it's right in between, why don't boys like me, and why are there red dots on my thighs? <laughs> <laughs> Why is there Just, always a Java update? Yes, a question for question. the time. Good question. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> our friend, Mr. Wizard, uh, Bob Bozen, at AskMrWizard.com, has continued producing his video versions of, of our prior podcasts that he thinks are core and important. He sent me a note saying, I've just, I've just completed new episode 29 on Ethernet insecurity, where you covered ARP cash poisoning. And, and he, he continued to say, your narration provided a fine addition to your How the Internet Works and How Lands Work episodes from back in February and March of 06. So he's continuing to work on those. For listeners of ours who don't already know, uh, Bob produces some some videos of that use the audio from the podcast along with his animations to sort of further embellish uh, what we're doing at askmrwizard.com. So just wanted to to give a note about that since he's continued to produce those and uh, work on Spinrite continues. Um, I don't think I mentioned before that. I have confirmed now that one thing that that people have been asking for, kind of, uh, the next release will be able to offer, and that is cooler operation. Um, one of the things that laptops have a problem with is getting rid of the heat that they produce. They often have, you know, there just isn't much room for air to move in a laptop just because of the physical size of it. And so many, many laptops, I know that all of my Lenovo's have a little vent area and you can feel like hot air being actively blown out of this thing as it's trying to cool off the CPU. Um, I've perfected the technology of completely halting the processor while Spinrite runs. It, the processor will almost never be running. What? Well, it's got to yeah. run a little bit. Um, it turns out that an interrupt, a hardware interrupt, can take the processor out of halt hmm. and does. And so, and so we've, we've got the technology now proven uh, for where I'm already at one phase of the work that we're doing, halting the processor for three and a half seconds in order to make it absolutely quiet to to determine some aspects of the system's That's timing. A good idea. That's a great idea. 
um, so that nothing else is going on. Right. Well, it also dramatically lowers the power consumption sure. and thus the heat production because the whole core, the processor clocks are just stopped. And so what will happen is um, 6.1 will, we, we've also confirmed, will be able to transfer in 32 megabyte blocks up from from much like a 64k buffer to a 32 meg buffer so we'll be transferring 65535 sectors at a time that that transfer is initiated and then the processor is stopped and it will be sitting there doing nothing just frozen while all of that data is is flow uh, flows into uh, ram and then it'll wake up check to make sure everything worked, queue up and start the next transfer and shut down again. So its operational duty cycle will be, I'll end up measuring it because it'll be really fun to, to know, but fractions of a percentage. And so, so it'll, have, it'll do that. And we're also going to spin down any drives which are not in use. So spin right the drive spin right's running on many people have machines with you know five or six hard drives in them it's amazing at, at the machines that, that that we're testing or sometimes two drives you know sometimes more spin right will shut anyone's down that it's not working on again to further reduce power consumption and to dramatically uh run the system cooler while it's operating clever yeah so getting there you may have noted the New York Times went down for a few hours uh, this past week. They now know that uh -huh. it was a spear phishing email, not attacking the New York Times, but a but a company called Melbourne IT, which is an Australian firm that buys addresses, domain names, and uh, th it was a domain name reseller. And hackers changed the DNS records once they got the logins from the domain reseller. Yep. So uh, it was a really good example of a spear phishing attack sent specifically to staff at Melbourne IT. Um, and uh, uh, boy, that's a. And it was effective. Yep. Yep. It wasn't even Melbourne IT, it was a sales partner in the U.S., <laughs> uh, a partner of Melbourne IT. So very indirect way to get it at New York Times. They weren't actually, it looks like, going after the New York Times, but, uh, but New York Times Plus. And. Uh, they got quite a few credentials, I gather. Wow. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a break. We have questions from our audience. Somebody in the chat room said, can I just come in the chat room and ask? No. Steve likes to research his answers. He doesn't like to answer off the cuff. He uh, takes it pretty seriously. So what we do is we have a website, Steve's website, and a form there that you can ask questions. If you want to ask questions now, go to grc.com slash feedback. And uh, Steve picks 10 or so questions each, uh, every other week, twice a month, answers them, and... Uh, so, yeah, we don't take uh, ad hoc questions because that's for the Tech Guy show. I was going to say that I also, I also do uh, keep an eye on my Twitter feed. And so if you uh, mention, yeah, yeah if, if, if you have something short and you mention, you know, SGGRC, so at sign SGGRC, if you tweet that out, um, by all means, I'd normally keep current with you know, yeah. er, er, everything happening in Twitter. Yeah. Uh, before we get to the questions, a word from one of our great sponsors, ProXPN.com. Uh, we've talked about OpenVPN, the idea of encrypting your web traffic so that people like your internet service provider uh, can't see what you're doing so that your traffic can emerge 
not necessarily in the U.S., but in, in, in a variety of countries to bypass geographic restrictions. Uh, businesses use VPN all the time. OpenVPN has a, is Gibson certified, the best open source solution for this. But, you know, unless you're running an open VPN server at home, which is complicated and time-consuming, you might want to uh, look at something like ProXPN. They do all the hard stuff for you to make it easy. If you visit ProXPN.com slash twit, you can find out uh, what they do. Uh, Steve looked at uh, the details. It is, of course, OpenVPN with a 2048-bit encryption key. The tunnel's 512 bits. This is all kind of industry standard. They have servers all over the world, too. Dallas, Seattle, London, Los Angeles, New York City, Singapore, Amsterdam. So you can bypass geographic restrictions. Uh, you can protect your banking details from your Internet service provider. Or if you're at an open Wi-Fi access spot or a hotel or somewhere where others are on your network, uh, protect it from them. More than ever, your online freedom and privacy are under threat. We know that. If you listen to security now, this is not news. Governments, ISPs want to control what you can and cannot see. They keep a record of everything you do. Free Wi-Fi at the coffee house, hotel, or airport is also at risk. Try it. It really is easy. It's fast. They have a free version, but the pro version, we got a special deal for you, and I want to encourage you to try it. Uh, the pro version, uh, which is normally... $75 a year or $9.95 a month if you just buy it month to month. You'll get a 20% off deal if you use the offer code SN20. And that's not for the first month or the first year, but for the lifetime of your ProXPN account. So if you get the yearly plan, that'll mean less than 5 bucks a month for this kind of total protection. And, of course, you can cancel within seven days of your account for full refund, so you don't have to worry about it. Forget CISPA, PIPA, SOPA, six strikes in the NSA, ProXPN.com. Visit ProXPN.com slash twit and get the offer code SN20. And don't forget, if you're on Android, there's a new ProXPN app for Android in the Play Store. It supports it. Uh, a lot of mobile devices can't do OpenVPN, though, so the, they, they do offer PPTP, but as you know, if you listen to the show, it's less secure. You can now do OpenVPN on Android with the ProXPN app, which is awesome. And of course, they have world-class customer support. ProXPN.com slash twit. Leo. I will mention, you know, because people are upset about PPTP not being as secure as OpenVPN, but it is way more secure than none. Than nothing. Than nothing. And, you know, if when you're at Starbucks or any open Wi-Fi hotspot, I mean, that is it. That is probably the number one highest risk environment there is currently. And so, sure, PPTP uh, encryption tunneling is is not infinitely unbreakable. But for someone who's just doing random traffic uh collection in an op in a, in a in a Wi-Fi hotspot you know sucking in passwords and tokens and so forth seeing what they can get you know you just look like an opaque stream of nonsense and they're just going to ignore you so you know by all means you know that's you know use that if that's all you've got that's like way better than nothing better than nothing yeah 10 questions from our vast listening audience starting with number 1 Dan in the UK He's at Dan's Galaxy on Twitter. Uh, is it possible, he asks on Twitter, for the NSA to identify a stream of VPN, well, this is very appropriate, VPN yeah. data, and then match it based on variable bit rate to the VPN server outbound? I don't know what he's asking. Well, so now that's, 
it's it's an interesting question because he's talking about traffic analysis, right? And and so if you had a VPN server, is there a way for someone? And he had his example. He's assuming the NSA would have an interest in mapping the unencrypted public traffic back to the encrypted tunneled traffic. And and so this is a concern because it's known as traffic analysis. And, for example, one of the things that the Tor nodes deliberately do is introduce variable amounts of delay in their forwarding of the traffic when it comes in the node and leaves the node because they would like to break the association between packet coming in, packet leaving. And so this is the, the, the feasibility of doing this is entirely a function of, of how busy that, that server is, whether it's a Tor node, for example, or a, a VPN server. Um, and also just like how closely someone is looking. So, for example, say that you had a server that only one person was using. Well, <laughs> you know, it's going to be very difficult to try to convince someone that your traffic that was encrypted going in is not related to the traffic coming out because, you know, there would be a burst of incoming traffic and, a, and a, an immediately burst of outgoing traffic. There'll be a one-to-one -one relationship. And so that makes it very obvious. At the same time, if there were a thousand people all using the server, then to a much greater degree, you're able to hide amid them. But at the same time, if you remember also that normally people are going to a specific location out on the Internet, so there will be an IP address where their public stream out of the VPN is going, and then there's an IP address where the encrypted tunnel coming out the other side of the server is essentially going. And so it's, it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a hard problem to really hide from that kind of analysis because even if there were a 1,000 people, one of the things that is characteristic of, of our use of the web is it tends to be extremely bursty. That is, you click a link and there's a flurry of activity where your browser requests the web page from the remote site. Then, that, then when the page comes in, your browser asks for all the resources, another burst of, of outgoing. And then typically it's, it's quiet for a long time while you, the human, cogitate over what you've just received and read it, scroll you know, and then maybe click something. And then another furious burst of activity. So so the fact that the traffic is as bursty as it is, really, I mean, it helps anyone who is, who, even if you had a thousand very bursty individual users on a single server, you know, little, you know, here's a burst, there a burst, and then, you know, bursts come in, bursts come out. It's, it's you know, traffic analysis is a way of, of you know de-anonymizing they're you know and associating your the VPN user with the public user and 
This is a problem for which there's not a good solution. That's one of the things that one, – one of the benefits of Tor is that if the reason Tor doesn't use just one node, for example, if, if, if you just had a single Tor node, this would be – you know, it would be easy to de-anonymize. It's by having it hop several times and the nodes deliberately introducing a delay specifically to confound somebody trying to do traffic analysis. So, great question, Dan. Yeah, wow. All that in 140 characters. <laughs> Advait in uh, India, I think. Kerala, India. He's a SpinWrite user, and he wonders about Linux versus Windows. Steve, when I browse the net in Windows, I always use NoScript. When I browse using my fully patched, up-to-date Ubuntu, I, I'm assuming I'm much safer, and I don't worry about NoScript. Am I putting myself at risk by not using NoScript in Ubuntu? Is it true that almost all current web-based malware and threats will simply not execute in Ubuntu? My understanding is Ubuntu is just a gooey shell around Linux. Thanks. Advait, happy spin-right owner. So, so um, his understanding the, the, of what Ubuntu is is mistaken, but that's okay. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. The thing to, I think, appreciate here is that there are, unfortunately, in this day and age, many different ways of getting yourself in trouble. So, so for example, if you are using Java, need I say any more? So, you know, that so a Java exploit could be tied to the underlying operating system, but doesn't have to be. It could be, you know, leaking your identity, leaking your session keys for things you're doing it could be it it could be causing a a web scale leakage of information for example lo logging logging what you're doing on your banking site even when you're on ubuntu linux be not because of the linux as a problem but because the plugins and add-ons like a, another of course, frequent culprit is um, Adobe's PDF. By the way, Lee, have you noticed how that sort of has that died down? We haven't that heard sandbox. a lot of uh, that. Yeah, yeah, that sandbox. It went from a from a like <laughs> a topic every week to wow, we haven't heard of any more PDF problems for a long time. Interesting, uh, huh. because they really did. They finally got sandboxing. They they took it seriously and got sandboxing working, and and that has really slowed these things down. But so so there's 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 the the potential problem of a web a web browser exploit then it's sort of at the next level is plugins which the browser is bringing along to enhance your experience javascript java pdf reader and so forth and then finally at the lowest level is the os itself and it, it is absolutely true that at the os level we're still seeing vastly more Windows exploitation than we are Mac. I would say Mac is probably number two, and then Linux is is a very distant third, um, just because the hackers are going where the people are, and the majority of people are still using Windows, and <laughs> Windows is seems to be giving you know no end of security opportunities for for compromise. Hmm. Jim Breen in uh, Chicago notes the security implications of Yahoo's recycling its one-year dormant email account. Steve, as you 
might be aware Yahoo began recycling email addresses this month. I became aware of it as my employer, a large online e-commerce site, scrambles to figure out how to handle the fact that the email addresses associated with some of our user accounts could soon belong to someone else. I wish this is stupid. Yes. Stupid as Yahoo starts recycling the accounts. So if you had, uh, you know, Leo at Yahoo.com uh-huh. and didn't use it for, what is it, a few years? What is it? No, uh, it's six, it's six, six months, months, I think. Yeah. That they might give Leo at Yahoo somebody else who doesn't want it. Trust me. <laughs> there are two big problems caused by Yahoo's decision to recycle email addresses, which have been dormant for a year, a year, I guess. Well, one year. The yeah. first, which seems to be getting the most attention based on Google searches, is that email senders with these Yahoo addresses in their mailing list risk sending email to people who didn't sign up for the list. Who knows what kind of stuff? Password resets. Yep. And having these people mark the email as spam, which then hurts the sender's email reputation with ISPs. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. This risk can be mitigated by removing the email address from the mailing list if Yahoo has been returning a hard bounce error for previous sends to those email addresses. But will they hard bounce if they reassign it? No. Nope. The second problem is relevant to a security. I wonder if they're going to do, uh, after a year, we hard bounce for six weeks and then assign it. Maybe they'll do Yeah, that. actually, I, uh, what I read was that they were going to hard bounce for a month okay. and then reassign it. Okay, that would be better than nothing. The yeah. second problem is relevant to a security audience. is harder to solve. If the original owner of the Yahoo email address associated it with an account on another site, then the new owner of the new email address will be able to take control of that account, of course, using the standard password reset functionality. Since most websites base proof of ownership of an online identity on ownership of an email address... Uh-huh. True, Yahoo's decision to recycle email addresses jeopardizes the accounts of those email addresses, former owners on sites across the Internet. This seems like something Security Now's audience should know about. Thanks for the great show. Wow, I didn't know about it. That's terrible. <sighs> yeah, terrible. it's caused uh, – even our old friend Matt Honan has weighed in saying, no, 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 do not do this. Horrible. Um, Marissa Meyer so ought one- to know better. And it actually, she's been quoted as being the motivation behind this. Of course. Yep. Saying, oh, well, we're going to, you know, spiff up Yahoo and uh, and give it a facelift. And, I mean, it's been around forever. And what they're looking at is they're looking at at all these email addresses that no one can use anymore that are, quote, good email addresses, unquote, you know, not, you know, Barney Smith three two seven two six five three two seven four eight nine seven, but you know, just Barney Smith. Hey, you didn't get and, an email address earlier. You missed the lottery. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, I mean, you know it would I mean? make so much more sense to like do Yahoo two dot com, or I mean, like change the make a small change to the domain name, or or something rather than than take this huge. Um, <laughs> huge bulk of 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 retired email addresses and Terrible. make them available again. You know, they're still getting email into them, which are bouncing. They're going to forever. But more importantly, and this was there was some commentary that I appreciated is that they look at they decide that the account is is dormant after some length of time if you're not logging in even if you're getting email if you're not logging in to re- re- receive it they say oh it's dormant and so that's their reassignment basis well the problem is people often have use a dormant account as their email security we've talked about have a separate account for your password recovery 
don't use your normal high traffic account for that. Have password recovery go somewhere else so that it's it's extra secure. And so now they're saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to, you know, if, if it's been dormant for a long time, we're going to free it up so people can get it. And, 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 and the point being made here is it is email. As we all know, that's the way you authenticate. Yeah. That's the only thing we have for like proving who you are. Yeah. And uh, so they're going to say, ah, no, we're going to let that happen. Baffling. Ba- bad idea. Baffling. You know, I guess one thing they could do that would be, you know, uh, more sensible is to make, you know, a new TLD, Yahoo dot me or yahoo mail.com or something or like yahoo, that or i said yahoo2.com or yeah. something um and yep. then you've got the whole set again fresh yep yep um and the other thing this is for anybody listening i think our audience would know this but uh, this is the very strong argument for buying a domain name of your very own and using it for your email address so you have a permanent address and then if something like this happens you don't have to worry about it you just move it to some other service just own your own damn email address it seems like nowadays that should be the really the real answer to this don't use somebody else's uh pat cho in sacramento wonders whether files can be securely deleted oh this is a good one we get once in a while you're the guy to answer from flash drives steve is it possible to securely delete files from flash drives with the Axcrypt utility you recommended from a previous podcast or any other utility. From what I've read, flash drives do writes differently for where leveling. And so it, it's, it may not be possible to overwrite a file. Is this a cause for concern, Pat Cho? So, yes. Um, the, the, it's sort of related to hard drives, but even worse. Hard drives will remove a sector from use when... It becomes unsafe to store data there because of a, a defect in the in the in the magnetic storage surface. So, so hard drives have a pool of spares, and they will spare out, as it's called, spare out a sector and replace it with sort of a fresh, good one. Only when there's a problem, flash drives work differently. Flash, it, as we've discussed. The actual technology of writing to a flash drive involves fatiguing the material of the drive. You use a high voltage to break through the insulation and sort of squirt electrons onto a little isolated pad where they're stranded. And that creates an electrostatic charge, which can then be passively sensed. So you can you read that there's that little charge there. But the act of writing a one or writing a zero squirts or drains electrons through this insulation, which over time fatigues the insulation. The insulativeness breaks down. So in order to solve that problem, because what what our, our operating systems tend to heavily use certain areas of the directory, the, you know, the actual directory structure, the metadata, which contains file names and and the 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 directory tree many files tend to be written much more often than others so that would create hot spots where where the the regions of the flash drive containing those files would fatigue much more quickly than areas that weren't ever being used so 
flash drive controllers deliberately do this um, uh, wear leveling, as, as it's called, which and it's exactly what it sounds like. They level the wear so that there isn't undue wear occurring in one location, and it's ongoing all the time. So whereas for a hard drive, it's only if there's a problem, it is fundamental to the way flash drives write is they will do, they they have logic that is constantly remapping the surface so that the entire region of the flash drive is is overall being written about the same amount what that means is prior versions of a file may exist on flash drives and the work that the group down in San Diego has done on recovering from where level drives, like essentially circumventing the controller to say, no, I don't want that sector. I want to look at the raw storage region. They've done that and they have verified that, you know, that this where leveling means that all kinds of prior instances of, of data on the drive is there and is definitely available. So what all of this means is, if you're concerned about security, you should never, ever, not once, write un unencrypted data to a flash drive. Wow. The first thing you need to do is, for example, install TrueCrypt. TrueCrypt will do a beautiful job of, of encrypting the drive so that everything you write goes through TrueCrypt on the way to being stored, and then you absolutely don't have a problem. Or... Use AxeCrypt, which is a nice little freestanding utility, or even WinZip. WinZip is now cross-platform. I was looking at it the other day. Uh, it uses very strong encryption. And so you just you use a, a, a good cryptographic key and then use AxeCrypt or WinZip or some enciphering tool so that what you store on the flash drive is always encrypted. Otherwise... To a much greater degree than for hard drives, they, you know, if somebody really wanted to get at your data, they could. You'd have to physically destroy the uh, SSD. You'd have to smash it and smash you the gotta chips. you got to crack it open and get yeah. to it. But it turns out it's entirely possible to do that. The guys in San Diego, there's a group of researchers who have been experimenting with this. Now, if I, after the fact, I, I have an SSD, external USB SSD. Uh, if I, after the fact, apply full disk encryption, even though I've been writing to it unencrypted for a while, they'd have to have the key to the full disk encryption to get down to the stuff, right? If you... I turned no, on Apple's if, file if, vault if, encryption, which is whole disk encryption. Right, or TrueCrypt. You add, True if you crypt. add TrueCrypt later, then, then the problem is you, you'd have to... I mean, over time... It would of use of using it that way. It would tend to replace the the less recently written right. regions right. with more recently written regions, which would so be encrypted the, at that point. Which would then be encrypted exactly. Right. Right. So it, over time, the not the previously unencrypted data would kind of get pushed out of use by by the wear leveling, which is what created the problem in the first place. So it sounds but, like if you buy a new computer and almost all laptops and Many desktops come with SSDs. The first thing you should do is turn on full disk encryption. Yep. Uh, otherwise, you're just really... Before you do anything cause else. Because it's going to be too late if you do anything else. Exactly. And, uh, and is it, you, know, you know, Windows comes with BitLocker and Apple comes with FileVault. These are, you know, a, a, as we've spoken about before, I, I don't really trust any 
non-open source uh, utility, but that would be the easiest way to do it because you don't have to. I just like TrueCrypt to... because it's portable. Right. You know, I mean, right. it, it 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 it's very been very well engineered. Yeah. All right. Okay. But Good you're right. Know. But there are there are native solutions. Yeah, there's operating and... operating system based. Yep. Now, uh, is there any way after the fact now to wipe the drive? No. No, there isn't. No, this is <laughs> so it's this, too this late. Is below, this is done below the level of the um, of the API. There are in the latest specs, the so-called ATA and ATAPI, the uh, AT attachment spec. This is where I've been living for the last couple of months. This is where Spinrite lives. There are commands, for example, a, a secure wipe, but there is. It's not exactly clear to me yet how that functions. And the other thing I want to look at, and I and I will be, is is the idea of the password on the drive. Whether the using the drive's own password, what level of security and and where that can be bypassed. But bottom line is, I, I would, you know, if it's a black box, it's a black box. It's very much like the cloud, you know, the internet. We say pre-internet encryption yeah. because we don't know what that cloud is going to do. Similarly, we don't know what that drive is going to do. Much better not to be concerned about it. You know, TNO applies to your drive too. Encrypt it before it gets written on the drive. Wow. And if you haven't, which most of us haven't, I mean, uh, you're... <laughs> I have tons. All my computers have SSDs now. Hmm. Too late. Yep. The good news is Spinrite will recover them when they have a problem. Uh, but it is the case that over t- you, you would want to add encryption immediately. Do it, turn it on right now and just keep using it. Right now it. Yeah. and just keep using it. And as yeah. it gets used, it the, 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 the wear leveling that caused the problem in the first place will also cause the solution. Right. Because that it'll still be wear leveling, but you'll be leveling... It'll be pushing the unencrypted stuff out into history, overwritten by uh, encrypted data. Wow. Mike in Philadelphia has some PGP worries. Thanks for the PGP episode, Steve. That was last week's, by the way. I had already downloaded Mailvelope and generated keys a few weeks prior, so I was happy for some background. Here's my worry, though. Where do those PGP keys come from? Are they generated by my browser? Or are they auto-generated by some key server? My worry is that these are generated by a key server, and I could choose to accept them or, or generate a new pair. My concern, of course, is snooping while the P- – we can just skip this because they're not. Right. <laughs> He's got all right. sorts of concerns. But, yes, so I wanted to make sure that nobody else was concerned. The whole concept of of – PGP or even SSL keys that that servers use is the private key, you know, the keys to the kingdom absolutely never leave your control. And they're created so, by the PGP program you're using in his case Mailvelope. Right. Locally. They're not created Which by is, a key server anywhere or anything like that. Correct. So 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 Mike's concern was that there, but there was seemed to be a server involved, and because this was a web-based solution, he was uncomfortable with. Well, I'm seeing things appear in the browser. Did the browser make it, or did it get it from a server? Because, which is a reasonable question, because everything we see on a web page comes right. from a server right. somewhere. But in this specific case, it is cryptographic code running in the browser that on the fly generates the key, and it never. That your your private key never leaves your control, 
and that that that's fundamental to right. to the whole public private key technology which is one of the things that makes it really so fundamentally cool and it's generated locally by your local software that's why we say use open source software so that you make sure that there's no code in the software that generates the key a good secure key and then emails it off to the NSA or something like that exactly open source software you can you know you or somebody can validate that it's fine um, and uh, so that's you know that's a uh, that's a nice thing about PGP. It is open source. Uh, I'm sure Mailvelope is open source, so you can see what's going on. Generate secure keys. And you know, again, I should I've said this before, but if even if you happen to lose control of your private key, you st there still needs to be a passphrase to uh, to use it to unencrypt it. Right. So uh, you, this is why you should not use what was that Terminator Two passphrase? You should <laughs> you should use a good. Uh, and passphrase might really be the wrong thing to say because it implies an English language sentence. Does yes, and we really shouldn't be using that. We should be using long, random strings of letters. Pass code. A pass, yep. pass code would be much better. Or pass even word well, isn't a good. Uh, no. Yeah, pass code. Random string of upper and lowercase letters, punctuation, and numbers. Grc.com/passwords. He'll you generate can. one for you of any Get arbitrary length. There. Yep. And then do like uh, Walter White does. Memorize. Memorize. It's good for your brain. Buy a uh, buy a lotto ticket. Dan Uff in Allen. Actually, a lotto ticket's bad because it's all numeric. You need some other stuff in there. Yeah. That's not enough. That's not enough entropy, kids. Hey, before we get to Dan Uff, who wonders about uh, using security now on his internet radio station, uh, I want to mention look, look out mobile security. If you're an Android user... Uh, you ought to know about Lookout. I use it, and I tell everybody about it, and I recommend you install it. It's, it's nice. It's free, and it has some nice features besides uh, looking for cyber threats. Forty million people now use Lookout. If you, I, and I highly recommend this. If you care about your phone or your tablet and the information on it, Lookout's protection is a must-have. They have the world's largest mobile threat data set, so that's how it works. And uh, so it scans every new app for malware that you put on your system. Very handy for that. They've, in fact, stopped over 10 million mobile threats to date using their dynamic threat analysis and modeling system to map and identify threats in real time. Every time I download a new app from any source, Lookout scans it and then says thumbs up, or I haven't yet seen a thumbs down, but that could happen. This continuous feedback loop that is constantly going between users and researchers allows Lookout to proactively protect personal and business devices for threats before they become an issue. The security is pushed out to you automatically all the time. You don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about it. Lookout for Android. Oh, this I didn't know it. They have it for iOS now. That's great. And the Kindle Fire. Best protection, automatic protection for malware, adware, spyware. By the way, I should mention they have a really good Find My Device solution that does some things that are super smart. Like, for instance, it, it saves the last time the device was seen. So even if the bad guy turns the device off or goes into a parking garage, it knows the last place the device was seen. With Signal Flare, even if your battery gets, uh, gets low, so you're much more likely to find that phone if it runs out of juice or or is actively turned off by a bad guy. There's data backup and restore, too. Easy device management. Most of these features are free. Some of them are premium. Try the free security solution right now. Lookout.com slash security now. 
And I do not. I I'm thrilled to hear they have for iOS. I do not in, uh, set up a first thing I do on an Android phone before I even download the other apps is install Lookout. Lookout.com/slash/security now. Steve Gibson, security guru, Leo Laporte. A few more questions for you, Steve. Uh, starting with uh, this one from a radio station, Dan Off in Allentown, PA. He writes. I'm the owner of a small internet radio station, WDMU Internet Radio. I'm in the process of trying to fill my radio time with quality content. I'd like to consider having your show as part of my station's lineup. I think the show would be a great fit and help educate my listeners about internet security at the same time. I see the show is made once a week. That's what I'm looking for. I'm also a big fan of Leo's and blah, blah, blah. And would be honored to have him played on my small station. Thank you for considering this request. If you have questions, please feel free to contact me directly. Thank you. So what do you think? It's okay by me. Here's the That's deal. That's what I thought. Yeah, here's the deal. Uh, and you should contact Lisa at twit.tv to get formal approval, okay? Lisa, L-I-S-A, is our CEO at twit.tv. But here's how it works. If you look at our license, it's at the bottom of every webpage at twit.tv. We are Creative Commons licensed. You can yep. read the details of that license. We do ask that you adhere to our license, which has three requirements. It's okay to, be, you know, to, to play it freely. For non-commercial purposes, as long as you give full attribution, that's simple, you know, Twit TV. In fact, you don't even have to do anything because unless you cut it off, it's at the beginning <laughs> it's of every all in show. There. Yes. Uh, and I, and uh, and the third thing is it's a share-alike license, which means uh, if you make a mashup, which you are even allowed to do, uh, that you sh- that you have the same license on the mashup. Now, I would ask personally that you leave our ads in because that's how we monetize. But our license does not require, I should probably shouldn't even mention that, but it does not require you to do that. Um, if you're going to put it on a commercial radio station, if you have your own ads on there, then you need to get our permission. And Lisa at twit.tv is the email address. But people do this all the time. We're rebroadcast in a lot of different ways. And I, I don't think we'd ever talked about it, so I just wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I love it. Uh, and, and you may add your own license. I don't know, Steve. Um, but that's the no. license on all of our Creative content. Commons. Yep, CC. Yep. Uh, non-commercial attribution share alike. And you can click the link at the bottom of every web page at twit.tv if you want to see the specific verbiage. As long as you adhere to the license, you, can, you don't even have to ask our permission. If you want to use it in a, in a commercial environment, which this might be, then uh, we're very, we're absolutely lenient. Uh, but do email us, uh, uh, lisa at twit.tv. What we don't want to do is have people like, you know, use it to make money. Cut our ads out, put their ads in, things like that. We, you know, that that's just rude. Be polite. That's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. John in Sacramento has an interesting thought experiment about PGP. He's been listening since uh, a long since episode one, which about as long as you can. Nine years. Uh, he was listening to our last episode. He's had the thought, why not put PGP in the email server <laughs> instead of the client? As I understand it, we have SSL encryption. Between the user's email client and the server, whether it's using IMAP, POP, Webmail, SSL, and it works with mobile as well, with PGP on the server, the user connects securely to their email server in whatever way is the most convenient to them, creates an email, and then as part of pressing the send button, once the server gets it, the server will encrypt it with PGP before sending it out to the recipient's server. Once there, by the way, there's the rub, the recipient's mm. email server would handle the decryption when the recipient connects Again, securely in whatever way is most convenient for them and download the decrypted message. All that's needed is a client capable of connecting to the server securely. 
which is much easier than trying to deal with plugins, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think, Steve Arino? Well, the problem is this. Well, there are several problems. One is that the moment you step back from from and the right term is end to end encryption. That's one thing we're going to be hearing. It's, it's a term we haven't really spent that much time focusing on, but it's been implied in many of the things we were, we're talking about. You know, SSL is end to end encryption. You you encrypt it where you are. It's decrypted where it's going, and everywhere in between, it's a pseudo random stream of noise that has no meaning to anyone. So that's the only way to be secure. As soon as you step that encryption back, even one stage from the end user, you start having problems. And, and so, for example, you know, as, as you've alluded to, even when you were reading this, Leo, the, it, I mean, um, John is right in that if we have an encrypted link to our server, then our email is safe. And if the server then encrypts it and it's encrypted in flight to the other server, it's safe. But notice that he said once there, the recipient's email server would handle the decryption when the recipient connects. So, so it's, it's the weak link at the server where now we have vulnerability. Whereas if you do leave it encrypted all the way to the endpoint you're not having that vulnerability. But there are more problems. For example, one of the beauties of the way PGP works, and Leo, you've alluded to this, is when you're, if, if you've got PGP locally and you've got a bunch of email addresses associated with the recipient's PGP keys, your client knows when to encrypt and when not to. It knows whose keys it's able to encrypt your message for, or if you if your client sees that you don't have a PGP key, it just sends it in the clear. So so you would be you lose that level of control and feedback the moment you move encryption away from the client, away from the endpoint, which is really where it needs to be. What you want is it's encrypted before it leaves the device. It's not decrypted until it, you know, it arrives at the recipient. Anything else, I mean, John's right that you would have secure links every step of the way, but it does create a problem where, for example, the NSA could say to whoever it is running the, the either your server or the destination server, uh, we want to take a look at that. Yeah, I mean, there are solutions that do this. Um, if you Hushmail uh, does this, but uh, you're trusting Hushmail. Yep. And so it doesn't. It, it, it's it's it, so the problem with PGP is that, that you have to create a key and share the key, and people find that complicated. You can't send an encrypted email to somebody who's not shared his key with you, or for whom you cannot find a key online, and so that's the pain in the butt. Well, okay. In fact, you're, you're, you are. This is the perfect segue into the next question, Leo. I think you uh, I, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Here we go. Question eight. Tim in Kansas, who really likes the idea of secure email, says, "I just thought if I could, I'd ask if, if you could go over the challenges of using PGP with Outlook. There are free uh, options. GPG for Win only supports older versions of Outlook." Uh, and those on Exchange servers. As far as I know, only commercial options exist for Exchange, and I'm not certain if the flexibility is on par, say, with Thunderbird or GPG or Enigmail. 
Thank you so much for covering this topic. I hope to see greater adoption of it as realistically, I've only been able to email myself, email myself and Leo. <laughs> Thanks for replying to my test, Leo. No one else I know uses it, nor can they yet be convinced. Best, Tim. Yeah, I have now almost 200 keys in my keychain. Yeah, and this, of course, is the problem. I mean, famously, this delayed Snowden's um, you couldn't get release. Glenn Greenwald to do it. Exactly. Glenn refused. He said, oh, I'm busy. Uh, I don't have time. Yeah, I don't have time. And, and, now, and, and, I should say, once you exchange keys or you figure, you know, you, once you have that going on, it's really easy. I just push a button. You know, and uh, enter my passphrase in some cases. In some cases, like on the Mac, the passphrase stored in the secure Mac keychain. I don't even have to do that. Once I'm logged in, I'm sending all... Anytime I email these people, I can send them completely secure email, except for the metadata. Yeah, I I just don't know. It'll be, it'll, it'll be fun as an observer to sort of watch and see where this goes. I My sense is people don't care that much. They're, they're like me. Right. It's like, well, you know, I'm just... Sending just understand you know, your email's a postcard. If you don't care, yep, doesn't matter. Um, yep, this is and I agree. I and mean, this is more an exercise. I my first PGP key I created in 1997. <laughs> I've because you could because I could because I've encouraged could. people to do it. And I have always published my public key on my website leoville.com. I had a hysterical exchange with somebody who said, I've looked everywhere. It's not on your website. Well, it is. It's on leoville.com. Well, no, but when I Google you, the first result is Tech Guy Labs. Why isn't it there? Well, it's not there. It's on my personal website, leoville.com. But it should be on all your websites. No, it's on leoville.com or on the key server. It's, it's, it's where it is, it's not where, where it, it is. is. Yeah, sorry, dude. Uh, yeah, I should also put it in your pocket, but it's not. <laughs> Nevertheless, more than 200 people have. And I apologize. I, I, I have actually been, unfortunately, swamped by people who want to exchange keys and test their setup. Because you're the only one they know. <laughs> the only, me and Tim. <laughs> yeah, let's get, okay, Tim, maybe we can give out your email, and then you'll be part of a crowd of people. Well, you know, what I, what I do is I sign every email that goes out. And uh, people see this PGP block. Maybe they start to get them. I don't know. I've done it for years, and I, yeah, it's not. You're right. That's Nobody wants to do it. No. John O. Denton uh, Tejas wonders about cookie list cookie tracking. Steve, have you heard about the? Of course you have, Steve. About this cookie list track technology that cannot be blocked. Doesn't rely on cookies, JavaScript, HTML5, local storage, session storage, global storage, Flash, Java, or other plugins. Nor on your IP address, your user agent string, or any methods employed by Penopt Click. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, this was also in the news. I'm not sure why it sort of sputtered up to the top. Um, we've talked it's about it briefly, new. right? Uh, it is. It involves e tags. One of the one of the things which is essentially it's been referred to as a cache cookie. The idea being, uh, and it's in use by websites right now. When a website uh, provides you with an asset like you know the the icon for the you know the, the little fave icon for the URL or any of the embellishments that is standard on on the site um, as we know browsers cache that on on the theory that it's much better to just save a bunch of this stuff locally I mean look how big our hard drives are we can afford to save it locally then going through the round trip of asking the remote server, to send it to us again. So it saves on the server resources. It, it saves on time. It makes the whole experience much better. 
What happens is, though, browsers may want to verify that there's been no change. So the server, when it provides an asset like an icon, for example, for, for the page, it will add a header, so-called metadata, to the resource called an e-tag, which is no, it's, it's an, meant to be an opaque token, which is to say it, it's, the value is what's important, not what the value means. That is, the value means something to the server. It might be a hash. It might be a CRC. It might be a checksum. It, it might just be an, an incrementing value that changes when the object changes. But that's the key because the browser sends back when it's being when – the, when the page it's loaded says, I need to display this icon, the browser sends back the same e-tag – that it received saying, I have this icon that you provided me with this e-tag. Uh, if the e-tag is different now, send it to me. Well, that's tracking. That's a way for the, for the browser. I mean, it's exactly like a cookie. Well, it's not exactly like a cookie. It's, it's cookie-esque highly because... The, the basically it's tracking your cache it's the way for the remote site to to be issuing these tokens to all the things in your browser that the browser is going to cache and the browser sends them back to make sure they haven't changed which identifies you uniquely identifies you if the e tags are unique so that's the key if the e tag was the same for every icon that it sent to everyone, then when they came back, the, the server wouldn't know who you were. But if the, but the e-tag, again, is an opaque token. So if it's something about the object plus something about you, then when it comes back, it, it essentially contains ide uniquely identifying information so that your copy in the cache is different from somebody else's copy in their cache, even though they went to the same site. So cookie-less tracking via e-tags, via the cache in your browser, uh, is something, it's in one more way that we're being de-anonymized as we, or at least tracked, as we move around the Internet. Robert Osorio in Lake, Lady, I'm sorry, Lady Lake, Florida, Wonders about the trusted, what is it, TPM? Trusted Program platform, Module? Platform, platform module. module. And the German government's concerns, uh, we've been talking about this for a while, the article in the German government, about the German government says that the German government thinks Windows 8 is a Trojan horse for the NSA and recommends people not use it. A year ago, I would have dismissed this as tinfoil nonsense, he goes on to write, but now... One has to at least admit it's possible after going to the Techno Security Conference for a couple of years. I know that enterprise customers have to vet hardware for Trojans embedded in firmware. I'm not sure about TPM 2.0 being forced upon you in Windows 8, though. Also, since it's a device, and any device can be disabled by some kind of hack, I would think you could bypass it. If Windows doesn't have a driver for it, or if the driver is disabled, I don't see how it could be forced on you. As I understand it, what TPM does right now is just provide a hardware crypto engine and a very good random number generator. Vista, Windows 7, and Windows 8 will use it if it's available, but 
it is not required. Love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, so we've done a we've done an episode in the past on the trusted platform module, and it is as Robert suggests. It is basically a crypto engine. It's a it's a physical chip um, by by requirement, essentially soldered onto the motherboard that creates an identity for the machine and also a vault for secrets for cryptographic secrets and the the way the thing is designed is it is possible for you to ask it to validate things but it is not possible there's no api that will cause it to give out your secrets so so as i understand it leo and i have not researched this because i've been busy with spinrite but as i understand it all of this nonsense it seems to me that, that the German government is complaining about is this notion of sort of a a loss of sovereignty to like the their own independent control of a Windows 8 based system which has secure boot technology and is locked to the trusted platform module you know on the desktop or the the laptop's board yeah i don't you know if you think about it, the logic of it is strained i mean if you're using anybody's closed source code you're it's difficult to know what it's doing yeah virtually impossible <laughs> yeah and so the tpm module or not i guess what they're saying is don't assume the tpm gives you some sort of security from microsoft well um one of the things that i've got on my short list of topics is the windows 8 secure boot technology yeah. i want to look Which at can, it closely by the way, can be disabled Yes, yes, uh, and in fact, has to be in order to run Spinrite. Uh, a lot of a lot of the testers who've been playing with it with the testing code are booting their Windows eight machines, right. and turning wind you know turning secure boot off is one of the things that, that people will need to do in order to. Essentially, the idea is that how how do you ever know that a Trojan or a a rootkit didn't get into the system before Windows began? That's the Achilles heel of of ever being able to trust Windows once it's running is did, was there a shim? Was there any opportunity for running something untrusted? And so it's really been carefully thought out, this notion of we're going to start from something we absolutely know and every single step forward, we're going to validate that that we're only running we're only in a. We're still in a, in a, in a, in a trusted enclosure, essentially, and so that's. I mean, it turns out it's a hard problem to solve, yeah. and and fascinating from an academic standpoint. And whoever wrote this article didn't really understand what's going on. I mean, the German, the Ger whatever German government official said this. If you're using it, you know, it's the same reason we don't use Chinese operating systems here in the U.S. It's just if somebody writes the operating system and it's closed, it's a closed, got any closed source code at all. They have no idea what it's going no to be doing. No idea what it's doing. None. TPM or not. Yep. And TPM does not secure you from the operating system by any means. That's not right. the point of it. Steve, we'll come to the end of 10 fine questions from our lovely listening audience. That means we're at the end of the show. I thank you. Encourage everybody to follow Steve on the Twitter. He's at SGGRC. He's also uh, at GRC.com on the web. 
If you go there, you can get Spinrite, world's best hard drive maintenance utility, a must-have. But you can also get lots of other stuff, lots of freebies. Steve's really labors away to uh, help you be safe, secure, and sound. The passwords are great. All sorts of stuff. GRC.com. If you do have a question, that's the place to go to uh, post your questions for future episodes. GRC.com slash feedback. That's where these came from. Every one of them. Yep. Well, except well, for the one, one Twitter. from Twitter. Twitter. Yep. 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 Exactly. And uh, you can also, uh, while you're there, uh, you might want to get the 16 kilobit version if you're bandwidth impaired or even smaller, the text version. We have full transcriptions at grc.com. The high-quality audio and video versions are at twit.tv slash sn for security now. And wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, subscribe to your favorite version or several. That way you're sure never to miss a week. Steve, I thank you so much. Always a pleasure, my friend, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Security.